Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogue. I am your host, Shante Charles. I hope you all are definitely having a better day than I've had so far. <laughs> I will tell you this is going to be a very, very short show. Number one reason, I am tired. <laughs> we had a power outage on last night into the early morning and we are really just getting our power back about three hours ago so there's a lot of things i have to check on i have to reset um i have to check on some things and make sure they didn't spoil um so yeah that has been my monday morning and i didn't get much sleep so today is going to be a very very short show um I'm not taking any conversations because I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I hope you all uh, will understand for today. But I did want to make sure that I came on as promised. Um, again, good morning. I am really, really tired. So this show is probably going to be about 15 minutes tops. Um, but I will be hopefully in a better frame of mind on tomorrow you can meet me on our facebook page black table talk again we had power out up until about three hours ago so i am trying to reframe my day and yeah i didn't get much sleep last night so that doesn't mean that the world it's not moving and continuing without me and all of my dysregulation from this morning. So again, I hope you are having a great and wonderful day. And I'm making my way. <laughs> I'm making my way to a great and wonderful day. I want to start off with a book called Historically Black American Icons Who Attended HBCUs. This is actually a new book that has come out. And um, I think this is an excellent book. So we're going to talk about quite a few of the people in here. There are, they have um, these beautiful, beautiful, beautifully done illustrations along with a short bio of the people who attended HBCUs. If you were on my Sunday um, dialogue, you know we talked about some of the people that are in this book. And um, yeah, I encourage you to go watch my Sunday dialogue. Um, I think, you know, I have been a believer for 25, 26 years, and I've been a pastor for over a decade. And I would say, out of all the messages I've delivered, that yesterday's was probably one of the most important ones I've delivered. So I encourage people to go and listen to it. It's on the Life Nation Facebook page. But let's get into it because I'm down to 12 minutes. So who are some of these people that went to HBCUs? I like how this book is broken up. Um, it's broken up into the newly emancipated, 
the quote unquote new Negroes, which was a specific time period of people that came out of that time, the agitators, the hip hop generation, and then the millennials. So they have sort of taken people from each one of these generations to create this book. It is dedicated to those on whose shoulders we stand and those who never got a chance, but were just as gifted, capable, and worthy. I like that. So let's look at the newly emancipated college years, 1837 to 1899. And as we look at this, this is during the quote unquote, third great awakening in America. And if you, again, check out my sermon from Sunday, you'll understand why this, this particular era was so important from 1837 to 1899. In 1837, the African Institute, also known as the Institute of Colored Youth, opened. It is the first HBCU we know of. Like many HBCUs of its time, the school was not technically a college or university as it did not grant degrees. It specialized in preparatory programs that taught students how to teach, how to preach, or how to conduct missionary work. Its reputation spread quickly. Lincoln University was founded in 1854, but became the first bachelor degree granting HBCU in 1865. Wilberforce University was founded in 1856, but came under the control of black people in 1863, the first HBCU to do so. For most of American history, anti-literacy laws prevented many black Americans from receiving an education. Nevertheless, black and white educators risked their lives to establish institutions that would allow black students to thrive academically. This does not mean the institutions were perfect. For the most part, HBCU curriculums of the 19th century were very Eurocentric and failed to take seriously the contributions of black people made to the country. There was also such a strict adherence to patriarchy and gender studies that women sat through sewing classes while men sat through farming classes. Despite these obstacles and shortcomings, HBCUs of this period graduated some of our nation's brightest, fiercest minds. You may recognize many of the names as they remain integral parts of our cultural canon. And of course, we gotta start with Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington. He is known as being an educator, but so much more. He graduated from Hampton Institute. Booker T. Washington is one of America's most revered educators, having founded Tuskegee Institute in 1881 with no more than $2,000 of state funds. That would be $54,000 in today's market. By the end of his 30-year stewardship, Tuskegee University maintained an enrollment of 1,500 students annually, employed 200 faculty members, and managed an endowment of approximately $2 million. That's $54,770,099 today. It's hard to imagine that such accomplishments were even fathomable to the young Washington, who was born enslaved on a Virginian plantation. The first nine years of his life were confined to a plantation in Franklin County, Virginia. When the Civil War ended, he and his family were granted their freedom and relocated to West Virginia, 
where Washington was encouraged to explore his academic interests. He worked the local coal mine from four to nine in the morning, then clocked out to attend school until the late afternoon. It was a grueling schedule and hard on the body, but he was committed to his education. When he learned of Hampton Institute, he became determined to attend. The school was 500 miles from his hometown, and he had to save up enough money to make the trek. To do so, he worked as a white woman's domestic servant for four years. He arrived at Hampton the year he turned 16 and accepted a work-study job as the school's janitor. He cleaned rooms late into the night and rose early, well before the sun, to build fires. But when he learned the job did not cover all his costs, he faced the prospect of dropping out. Hampton's president heard of Washington's troubles and secured a scholarship for him through one of the college's donors. It was through this generosity that Washington was able to finish his studies. At Hampton, he took classes on rhetoric, elocution, and vocal training, skills that would prove instrumental years later. As he built relationships with wealthy philanthropists like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears, Roebuck, and Company, he was also introduced to a more nuanced understanding of Black history. It was a history grounded not in the falsity of Black people's submissiveness, but their agency, opinions, and autonomy. Courses spotlighted Black leaders like Frederick Douglass, Senator Blanche Bruce, and Governor PBS Pinchback, providing Washington with diplomatic models that he would in time mirror. Even the darker moments at Hampton taught him valuable lessons. During his years as a student, HBCUs were often razed to the ground as fast as they were built. White supremacists terrorized students. A group of them murdered two teachers at Hampton. Some believe that these life-altering experiences contextualized Washington's more controversial moments like his 1895 speech, The Atlanta Compromise. In it, he calls for Black progress through entrepreneurship, not the dismantling of Jim Crow practices. This strategy informed many of Washington's most successful moves. Towards the end of his life, with the help of the philanthropist and businessman Julius Rosenwald, Washington built more than 5,000 schools in rural Black communities. By the time he passed away, he'd supervised the erection of 33 buildings on Tuskegee's campus, the acquisition of lands that sprawled nearly 2,000 acres, and a legacy that would withstand ages. He said of his time as a young man, I was on fire constantly with one ambition, and that was to go to Hampton. Now, I'm skipping over a couple of people because I'm going to hit them later in the week. I want to go to somebody that maybe we don't know. I know her. Yeah, let's go here. Alice Dunbar Nelson. Alice Dunbar Nelson. I like the fact that this book does a really wonderful job with the illustrations. Known as a poet and critic attending straight college. In the body of work produced by Alice Dunbar Nelson, there's poetry, fiction, and criticism that at once interrogates and embraces the Black experience. As an artist deeply committed to civic engagement, Dunbar Nelson's Au revoir is a masterclass on making a personal, the personal political. 
She started this work early, constantly discovering new ways to balance her service-oriented interests with her artistic passions. As a teen, she attended Straight College's two-year teacher's program and staged dramatic performances throughout New Orleans. Upon graduating from Straight, she began teaching in the city's public school system, but still found time to lend her talents to the woman's era, a newspaper created by and for Black women. Remarkably, she continued writing her own pieces and at 20 years old published her first book, Violets and Other Tales, a compilation of short stories, essays, and poetry. Committed to both art and civic life, she found the classroom to be one of the best places to advance the social conditions of her people. Her career in education spanned 36 years and took her to Brooklyn, New York, Washington, D.C., and Wilmington, Delaware. In Brooklyn, she joined a black women's club, spearheading its free kindergarten program. Also in Brooklyn, she began a romantic correspondence with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, one of America's most notable poets. After they got married, Dunbar Nelson joined Paul in Washington, D.C. in 1899. She published The Goodness of St. Rock and other stories, and Paul published Poems of Cabin and Field. The marriage informed the work of both writers, but proved too tumultuous to sustain. Leaving Paul Dunbar Nelson, leaving Paul, excuse me, Dunbar Nelson relocated to Delaware, where she taught high school English for many years. In 1907, she enrolled as a special student at Cornell University, a stint that culminated in the publication of Wordsworth, use of Milton's description of pandemonium. This shift to nonfiction marked the latter half of her writing career, which was mostly devoted to criticism. It was a shift that also coincided with her marriage to Robert J. Nelson, a poet and civil rights activist who helped her once again blend her two halves. In 1920, she opened the Industrial School for Colored Girls, where she taught delinquent and homeless female juveniles. As an administrator, she attended court parole sessions and organized dramatic productions for girls, once again infusing civic engagement with the arts. Many scholars mistakenly referred to Dunbar Nelson only in relation to her first husband, but she made significant contributions to both the Black literary canon and community all on her own. Her story shows us the possibilities and power of the civic artist. She said, the Negro begins to see that what affects the darker skin everywhere must affect him here on this continent. The sufferings of Gandhi in India, the, the struggles of the natives in South Africa for economic independence, the cry of the Filipinos for self-determination, all these must be part of his thinking. These are his people, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, bound to him by that chain which the white world has forged, the chain of color, and those black and heavy links hammered out of the anvil of prejudice, may not be broken, but must ever be wielded stronger as hatred closes in around them. Anne Dunbar Nelson. All right. I want to thank you all for hanging in with me for these last 15 minutes. <laughs> um, my motivation for this day is number one, I'm alive. Number one, I'm half awake. <laughs> I'm awake enough to appreciate this life. I'm thankful that I have a home that I, can, that I have to check on. I'm thankful that I have a refrigerator that I have to check on now. I'm thankful 
that I have the ability to be out of the cold and in the warm. So those are some things that motivate my Monday. I'm thankful that you all showed up just to hear me read. I do not take that for granted. Um, I appreciate the community that Daring Dialogues has built and is building. I hope that you have a great and wonderful day. And remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Take care, everyone. I'll see you on Tuesday, as the Lord wills, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on a Black Tabletop page. Over there, we'll be covering some more of this book. And Isn't Her Grace Amazing? The Women Who Changed Gospel Music. Take care, everybody, and have a wonderful day. Thank you.